Hello Patreons, today I'm bringing you a bit of a serious case. Well, we'll start it off with the Mandela effect and describing what it is, just so you understand the concept of like false memories. And then we're gonna go into a case that I haven't seen covered yet by any podcasters. And I've been ranting on the socials recently about this, but I do think we as podcasters tend to just go over some cases that have been covered so many times, whether it is because they're super interesting or it is because we know that they're popular and other people are going to be listening to, which kind of means that there are shit ton of cases that have never been heard by the public. Even when there's a perfect opportunity, like in this case with Mandela Effect just leading to this story, everybody just tries to focus on how weird and fun Mandela Effect is and how odd some examples are. So I hope listening to this kind of encourages people to cover some cases that might never have been covered before. Just do your Google search a bit. This case is actually from the Innocence Project. So just go scout on Innocence Project, maybe even get in touch with families if you know. You can just give voice to people who don't have anybody to speak for them. Let's dive in. So what is Mandela Effect? In 2010, Fiona Broom named Mandela Effect based on the false memory people had of South African leader Nelson Mandela dying in the 80s in prison, whereas he actually died a free man in December 2013. And this was apparently a memory shared by thousands of people. But long time before that, in 1974, Elizabeth Loftus and John Palmer conducted a study to investigate the false memory and the effects and the development on it. So they introduced two experiments. I'm just going to mention one of them just because it is more interesting than the other. So the groups of participants were shown the video of a car accident. So the first group was then asked questions about the accident using the word smashed, the second group using the word hit, and then the third group was never mentioned any of these words or the speed of the crashed cars. And the researchers also then asked all these groups, have they seen any broken glass? knowing that there was no broken glass in the video. So as you might guess, where they used the verb smashed, everybody claimed that they have seen the broken glass. Which again just proves how we can initiate a false memory depending on just even as simple as the verb we use in the sentence. Some of the examples, there's tons of videos of the common false memories are that the correct way is to say sex and the city and not sex in the city, as the TV show that I refuse to watch. Which for me, it kind of makes sense, even though it's a dumb name, whichever way you think about it now. But then the one that I find mind-boggling is that Skechers have no T in them. And I'm like, but then it shouldn't even be said Skechers, what? But the Flintstones do have those two Ts, so there is Flint and then Stones. I was like, this is this was my childhood, how do I not know this? How do I remember this the wrong way? Now the one that people find so mind-boggling is the Forrest Gump. And he doesn't say life is like a box of chocolates, he says life was like a box of chocolates. No sense. No common sense. And every Disney bitch out there is losing it about this, but it's not mirror mirror on the wall, it is magic mirror on the wall. And what Star Wars fans are losing it about is the famous line is I am your father. There's no Luke, I am your father. Now that we went through these such important examples, 
think for a second about the actual implications of false memory. So think of the instances where you could be feeding the suspect the confession, or where a suspect might have been thinking something over and over again until it became a real memory for them, but they have never actually committed a crime. This happened to the 18-year-old Peter Riley, who sat in the interrogation room having signed a confession that he brutally murdered his own mother, 51-year-old Barbara Gibbons, after 25 hours of intense questioning. The only problem? He was innocent. In 1975, two years after his conviction, Peter walked free, exonerated by evidence that proved he couldn't have been at the scene of the crime. What were the motives behind his confession? We are going to the night in September 1973, where Barbara Gibbons was brutally killed in Canaan, Connecticut. So she was killed at home, her throat was slashed, severing her head, her legs were broken, apparently like after she was killed, so post-mortem, and then there was also evidence she was sexually molested. Now, Peter Riley was at the time actually coming home from the teen center meeting and he went into the bedroom and found his mother covered with blood and breathing with difficulty. He made a call to the ambulance, then to the doctor, finally to the hospital. And then the hospital notified the police which arrived to the scene of the crime as well. Now, they bring him to the police station and immediately start interrogating him. So he explained to the police that after leaving the teen center meeting, he drove one of his friends, John Sokochki, to his home, and then he arrived home between 9.50 and 9.55 that evening, discovered his mother, made a cause, waited for the police. Now, during the interrogation, they gave him a lie detector test and then they claimed he failed it. But they also asked him about his mental illness and whether that maybe caused him to black out during the crime and not remember it. So the police was kind of putting the words into his mouth, suggesting that he must have been the killer. And now, a few hours into the interrogation, Peter actually provided detailed memories of the attack, explaining both his motive, that his mother was an alcoholic, who rarely showed him any affection, so this is why he killed her, and the plan of disposing of the weapons, so throwing it behind the petrol station that was nearby. He said, quote, We got into an argument, I remember picking up the straight razor, and I slashed towards her throat, end quote. Now, based solely on this confession. This goes to trial, where this medical examiner describes like the wounds and he also says like it's obviously possible to inflict these injuries without being spattered with blood. And by obviously, I mean, you can again get an examiner, get a medical person to say whatever you want to say technically. Because one expert is going to have one opinion and the other one is going to have the other. Now, some witnesses come forward saying he's showing no apparent grief and his confession is introduced. What nobody like defense or prosecution could establish was the time sequence of the events. So when did he actually have this meeting and when did he return? The defense introduced several witnesses who saw Riley at the teen center as late as 9.30 p.m. that night. And also his friend who said that Riley did drive him home and that they left him at his house at about 9.45. Which should be solid if you think about it, but no, the jury goes to deliberate and they come after 50 
15 hours. And when I first heard this, I was like, okay, 15 hours is not as bad. Because usually the shorter they deliberate, like they will just come out with a guilty verdict. But 15 hours, I was like, okay. Like maybe they have decided in his favor, considering obviously the evidence as well. And that there should be some reasonable doubt. Also, as a record, they have asked several times to have segments of the trial transcript read back to them. Now this judge again urged them to reach unanimous decision, telling the jury to make their own judgments while considering what the majority is deciding. So again, you're technically being like, yeah, lean towards the majority and don't have your own decisions. They came with, with a guilty verdict and Riley was convicted of manslaughter in the first degree and sentenced to prison for a term of 6 to 16 years some circumstances that happened here that luckily did happen and they don't in so many cases because when I checked Innocence Project there are a bunch of people of different races that have been in prison for 15 plus years that haven't had this kind of luck like Peter Riley had in this case post-conviction. His defense lawyer Rora Beck appealed the trial immediately just refusing to allow the court to get away with this conviction based on this forced confession. His friends and neighbors started assisting him in a campaign to prove him innocent, and then, again, a playwright called Arthur Miller made this case a public issue and alerted the New York Times as well. But the prosecutor again claimed that he has confessed, so that should go basically over every other evidence. However, he actually died while this was appealed, and the new prosecutor found the details quickly, extensive evidence that showed that Riley was actually miles away from his house when the murder happened. So now again, during this appeal, it's all about introducing reasonable doubt. So what they have, they have fingerprints of two other people that might have been involved, and one of them is named Michael Parmley. So during the original trial, uh, he had an alibi. This family member or this girlfriend, I couldn't actually find information, but they said that they were with him. But then in April of 1975, she said she originally lied and that he was not with her, she did not know where he was. And what also came out is that Peter Riley actually made another call on that night. The first call he made was during the television broadcast of the movie Kelly's Heroes. So now, this person, this family member, said that this particular movie aired on that evening at 9.50pm. Like, they got this record from, like, CBS. Now, what this shows is he dropped his friend home at 9.45, then he drove home for five minutes, which gave him no time to commit the sexual act, the murder, and to break his mom's legs post-mortem. And now the judge says that these three pieces of evidence are enough for us to actually release him, and he has been released in March 25th, 1976, and the state of Connecticut never attempted to bring another prosecution, so he remained free. Now, this was significant for the state of Connecticut because the public began to feel like the police were not to be trusted as they forced somebody to sign a confession of murder after questioning him for extensive amount of hours when he was clearly innocent. This mystery also stayed unsolved, and Peter has obviously expressed afterwards that he would still be interested into looking to find his mother's killer. But an even bigger question remains, and that is, why did he confess to something he didn't do? So there can really be two reasons. One is kind of considered inserting the truth, so Dr. Herbert Spiegel actually suggested Peter Riley could have been led to confess due to his difficulty of integrating a concept of self. 
So this is what definitely should stop being the strategy used by the police, which is kind of like inserting a person into the act as you just prompt them to say yes or no as the answer to the question. Where then, obviously, after a substantial amount of time, you might just sleep up, confess, they have it on the record, and that's over for you. So this doctor said that Riley was actually unable to distinguish between a statement and an assertion or a question, and could easily be led to accept as a fact something he knew nothing about. So it could be a mixture of that and this next point, or it could just be the next point, which is false memory. Now, the Innocence Project movement says that false memory actually plays a role in more than 70% of the wrongful convictions cases that they overturn. Which is insane, but what's even more insane is that in 10% of those cases, the clients would originally plead guilty, serving an average of 14 years for crimes they didn't commit. Like, just playing again into what I just said, like, when you go into the website, it's usually like they're serving at least 15 or above, some of those people serving 20 plus years already, for some crimes that they have never committed, but they have pled guilty to. So Dr. Shaw, who is a psychologist, says that basically what she does, she experiments with people, asking them to repeatedly imagine committing a crime, whether it's theft, assault, or assault with a weapon. And after three interviews using leading techniques and imagination exercises, she sees that 70% of these people accept that they're guilty of the crime they didn't commit, which kind of again matches the Innocence Project stats even though this is, like, not a real life. It's just an experiment. And I love this quote by the woman behind the Mandela Effect, Elizabeth Loftus. She said, like, the memory is not kind of like a CCTV system, that it records everything we see or do. It's more like a Wikipedia page, where you can go in there and change it, but so can other people who can contribute and sort of add bits and pieces and establish what they think the true memory should be. It's especially easy to understand in situations where you are maybe young, you are a teenager, you have had fight with your parent or whoever, and you have imagined so vividly and so repeatedly certain actions that you would want to inflict onto that person. And then again, once somebody just uses the techniques, the leading techniques to make you say that out loud, then you do, and that's already a confession. So to tie all of this back to the Mandela effect, Fiona Broom believes that this can be defined by us having multiple parallel realities, and somehow they have glitches. So what she suggests is there is this quantum mechanic multiverse theory, which speculates there could be many possible universes all existing simultaneously. Now, this does sound bizarre, but when you think about just the actual case behind the Mandela effect, everybody you might have asked knows that he served a long sentence, so many assumed he died in prison. You might actually know the facts, know exactly when he has been released, how long he has been outside, what he has been doing during his political career, you might still, because of the memory, because of how many times you have heard this story or how long you know he has served in prison, might incline to believe that he has actually died in there. So people will think about it, imagine it happening, and then subsequently become convinced of it as a fact. But in the life of those fighting for the convicted or the convicted people themselves, the reality is not a segment of live witness news on a late night TV show. You can't go back on a false confession or a simple affirmative response to a leading question. 
There needs to be more awareness of false memory between the lawyers and the police for the confessions like Peter Riley's to become the ancient history and not a case of repetition. Because if this case taught us anything is if it becomes the case of repetition, more and more people will think about it happening, imagine how it happened, and subsequently become convinced that it did.